car uh, so much, and I know for single parents out there especially, we just, we live and die based on our cars, and if they're running, boy, life is good, and when they're not, uh, life becomes a headache. And so, um, so some people here at Cornerstone have graciously donated their time, and they're going to come Saturday morning about 7 o'clock and set up everything they need, uh, that you need, to get a 20-point check on your uh, vehicle. And they are willing to do that free of charge. Uh, just come with your vehicle and they will do that for you. And if there's anything that needs to be fixed on your car, they would be glad to uh, advise you uh, properly. And maybe they can do it, maybe they can't, but they will get you into the right hands. And so a wonderful opportunity. So two things, if you need help on your car, come Saturday morning, uh, sometimes Saturday morning right here in the parking lot. And if you can help with somebody's car, um, and you have that kind of bent to you, and, and that's something you'd be willing to do, please, please, please show up and volunteer your time. I believe there's a sign-up sheet on the link to the Facebook page. And so if you go to the Cornerstone Facebook page, there is a link under Car Care, Car Care Clinic, and you can sign up and let them know you're coming uh, either way to get your car fixed or to, to actually volunteer and help. And so what a wonderful opportunity for us helping each other, especially in a time of need. Speaking of a time in need, um, we also are in need of candy this Sunday. And so um, God forbid there should be a candy shortage on Sunday, but we are running short. Um, and so those two bins out in the front lobby will be available for us all the way up through Saturday. So please bring bags of candy anytime throughout the, the normal business hours, uh, anytime up through Saturday, and we would gladly take it off your hands. The only thing we can't take is uh, chocolate that would melt. And uh, so any chocolate that wouldn't melt, you can bring. Um, so think about that, what chocolate wouldn't melt, Tootsie Rolls and the like. Um, they won't melt ever. Um, and, uh, and it has to be single package candy. So you can't bring a bag of jelly beans or... Um, anything like that. It's got to be single packages, okay? So think about that on your way uh, out when you just make a reminder to yourself, I need to bring a bag of candy and drop it off. Um, the kids would greatly appreciate that and whomever's going to receive that candy, okay? Thanks. Um, okay, jump in with me to James chapter 4. And as you do that, <clears throat> let me just bring us up to speed as to where we've been in case you've missed uh, where we are and where we're going. And we've been in the book of James since... Um, Gosh, about August or so. Wonderful, wonderful uh, study that we've been in. Um, but we have been trying to go verse by verse, and we find ourselves now kind of rounding the corner. Um, our goal is to go through James chapters 4 and 5 um, before May 8th or so. Uh, and there's, we have one more small break. Uh, we just were informed today that April 9th we won't have the mind because of a, a meeting they're having here uh, at Cornerstone. And so we won't meet April 9th, but we'll meet every week from now until May 8th, I believe, or somewhere around May 7th, except for April 9th. And so just kind of lock it into your calendars. Um, and, and we'll try to get through every verse from chapter, chapters four and five. And the challenge with that, obviously, if you've read ahead is there's a lot of stuff in chapters four and five that we need to deal with. Um, but if we get to May 7th and we haven't finished chapter five, uh, that does not mean that uh, Jesus is coming back or it doesn't mean that he's mad at us or uh, it just means that uh, we need to go a little longer. And so we will. OK, but we we'll find ourselves in chapter four tonight. And if you'll recall, when we left uh, three weeks ago, uh, we started in chapter four. And so just to recap, we discussed this idea that while we are 
amazing creatures and while we have the uh the amazing abilities to do great things for the kingdom and great things with our mind and our emotions and our physical bodies and we looked at some video clips of people doing some fantastically risky things um, that we all think is is wonderful and, and we champion the idea that we are a part of this wonderful thing called the human race and almost the epitome of god's creation on the other side of that Uh, We just began to touch on this idea that we have the propensity as human beings to make some deathly wrong choices. And so we wanted to deal with this issue as James deals with it the best we can through what he deals with it as the best he can, which is to just call it what it is. And I thought, you know, what an appropriate week on so many levels to be talking about what we're going to talk about tonight. Um. Yesterday, if you were here for uh, Cole's funeral, um, you know, I hope to all of us that that was a, uh, something that we'll always remember uh, for many, many reasons, but uh, not the least of which is that life is short and none of us are guaranteed tomorrow. And I hope all of us walked out of that beautiful service and such great tributes to a, a wonderful young man with that in mind. Um, and, and because life is brief, gang, um, what we're going to talk about tonight, I hope, hits home with you. Whether you're 13 or 33 or 83 in here, uh, it's going to apply to you. Um, this week is Passion Week. It's Holy Week. And, uh, and we will um, begin the services, if you will. Some of you even on Thursday night, but most of us will come on Friday morning and we'll enjoy a good Friday service. And and that will carry over into the weekend and then all of us will come back on Sunday and we'll celebrate the death and resurrection of our Savior. And, and, uh, and so what we're talking about tonight is, is directly applies to, to why we even need a Savior and, and why we do all the things we do on Easter um, besides the tradition or in, in addition to the traditions that you and I all hold. It's the fact that we need a Savior. Um, that was brought to my attention very acutely um, these past three weeks. I think I mentioned right before we left for break, I had just got called for jury duty. And, um, and the trial lasted for about three and a half, almost four weeks actually. And so I sat in a jury room, uh, which I'm sure several of us have. And, uh, and we were told before the case started what kind of case it would be. And just by the nature of the case alone, it eliminated a number of people in the jury pool. Um, But they eventually arrived at a jury pool of of 15 of us. And then that dwindled down to 14 after day one, one of the jurors was excused. And then, uh, and then at the end, there were 12 who actually decided this case. We weren't allowed to talk about it at all with family or friends for the duration of the case. But since the case ended last week, it's public record now. An 11-year-old girl was accusing a 41-year-old man of several acts of sexual abuse. And by the time that she had um, come forward with that information, this happened about three years ago. She is now 15. Uh, She was 11 and a half or so. She's now 15. And she felt it was time to bring this information to her biological dad. And thus the police got involved. and, um, And so... So as the trial uh, carried on and as the witnesses came forth and gave their testimonies, basically what we had was no evidence whatsoever. And we had to rely on the testimony of a 15-year-old girl, uh, of, a, of a now 45-year-old man who was the former boyfriend of the girl's biological mother. 
uh, her older sister by about a year and a half, the mother herself, a few detectives, and the defendant. And that was it. And 12 of us, uh, well, 14 of us at the time had to weigh the evidence, which was more or less testimony. And we had to decide beyond a reasonable doubt, did this man commit these crimes that he's being accused of? I looked up online, and again, those of you who practice law may be in the room, you can correct me, but online at least, it said in Arizona, if you're over the age of 18 and the victim is under the age of 12, which in this case that applied, um, on one count, it's a it's mandatory life sentence with the earliest possible parole at 35 years. And he's 45, and he was up against 10 counts. The reason I bring that to our attention tonight is because as I was sitting there in this room for three and a half weeks, uh, listening to testimony after testimony, by which everyone, as you know, gets up and says before God and everyone, I swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me, God. That as I sat within a few feet of people getting up and, and having questions asked and, and answering questions, and um, she was saying he did this, he was saying he didn't do it, it dawned on me about day, I don't know, three or four, Someone in the room is lying. And based on what this guy is being accused of, somebody in the room is evil. We're not talking about someone just saying, um, well, they stole a pack of gum and so let's slap him on the wrist. We're talking about someone saying, this man did horrific and heinous things to me of which I want him to be punished And our legal system says the way we're going to punish you is to put you away till you die behind bars. And whether you agree with that or not, that's what he was up against. So I'm sitting in this room looking at these two individuals primarily saying one of you in this room is evil. So either a 15 year old girl said to the police over and over again and then said to us in court, This is exactly what he did. And it was graphic and it was horrific. And she made the whole thing up. I mean, if you could do that. And and literally put someone behind bars for the rest of their life simply because you don't like that person. Which was the defense's case was that she was just trying to get him out of the house, basically, because she didn't like him. Then you're evil. On the other hand, if you could look at an 11-year-old girl and do such horrific crimes to her, cover it up by telling her you better not tell anyone or else it's going to get worse for you, continue to live with her year after year after year and every day have her look at you and you look at her and only you two know what's really going on and no one else knows what's going on. And then finally when the police come to to your doorstep and ask you if you did it, you will go to your grave saying you didn't do it. If you really did it and you're sitting in that courtroom, then you're evil. And was right there in front of me for, for three weeks, hour after hour. I just, as everyone else was maybe getting into the, the, the minutia of the case, I was just kind of at that level of one of you is evil. And here was the beauty of it, guys. The beauty of it was I couldn't tell. In fact... It it was a mistrial, in case you're wondering. Nine voted guilty and three could not decide. So it was a mistrial. So none of us could conclude beyond a reasonable doubt, 
unanimously that one of those per- people were evil. Some people thought it was the girl, some people thought it was the guy, and that was it. And as I walked away from that trial, I thought, how magnificently deceptive. And if that isn't proof of we live in a depraved world, I don't know what is. That I couldn't tell. I'm a, I'm a fairly reasonable guy. I, I think I can discern good from evil most times. And everyone that took the stand, everyone that took the stand, in my opinion, sounded truthful. At the end of the day, my students were always asking me during the trial, what do you think? What are you going to vote on? What do you think? And I was like, I don't, I, I don't know. In fact, just so you know, I was voted the day they closed the arguments. Um, they, they randomly, they get out this little boggle box kind of thing. They shake it and, and they randomly pick two numbers to send home for the alternates. And I was one of them. So I didn't even get the vote. Which was frustrating on many levels, but um, but it, uh, part of me thought, I don't know, maybe that's not a bad thing, because I don't know if I want the weight of sending someone to prison that may not belong there, um, or not letting someone go to prison that does belong there. But someone in that room, flesh and blood, was a very very depraved person, and I couldn't figure out who it was. Uh, you may have seen. I don't know if we have this on the. Um, up on the screen here. Can we throw... There. Did you see this, right? Um, this kid uh, walked into a high school three years ago... Or t- last year, I'm sorry. And shot off ten rounds. Killed three, three male students in a high school in Ohio. And then wounded three others. One of which he wounded will be paralyzed now for life. Uh, TJ Lane, I want to say. When he came to court this past month, uh, almost a year after the crime itself, um, he was wearing a button-up shirt like mine, and underneath was a t-shirt, and for sentencing, which he got three life sentences, and so he's not getting out. Um, During the sentencing, uh, oblivious to the judge, apparently, he unbuttoned his t-shirt, and underneath the t-shirt was, uh, underneath the shirt was a t-shirt, with, you can almost see it there, with the words killer written on it. And during the sentencing, when the victim's families were in the, in the room waiting for him to be sentenced, he swiveled his chair around and faced them and smiled and laughed and mocked at them the whole time he was being sentenced. And at one point, even flipped them off. And not to be incredibly graphic, but just, just to drive home this point, if I may, while he was flipping them off, he uttered the words, I touch myself with these, the same hand I used to kill your kids. And every time I touch myself, I think about the way I killed them. Or something to that effect. As they're sentencing him. We have this, we have this ability, guys. To be um, this side of heaven. To do amazing things with our lives. Um, you, you and I can invent things. And be entrepreneurs. And love people. And co- come to, to, together like we did yesterday. And, and grieve together. And, and we have the ability to do that. And then we can do this as well. Um, I don't know if you saw this one, right? This one, uh, right? This uh, this was the the 13-month-old that uh, his mom was pushing him in a stroller. And in Georgia, uh, yeah, West Brun- uh, Brunswick, Georgia, two kids, 17 and 15, wanted to rob her, pulled a gun out, and she said, I don't have any money. And they pointed the gun at her, this child in the stroller. And when she tried to protect her child, they pushed her away and then shot the baby. 
and killed him at point blank range. And if that's not bad enough, which it is, uh, earlier in her life, her 18-year-old son was killed, was murdered in a stabbing. So what is, what's the answer? Um, and I guess before, before we say uh, Jesus, um, I don't want to get too far down this path without addressing the issue. Because I think it's too easy for us to say the issue is evil. Or the issue is we live in a, in a, um, we live in a fallen world. So this is to be expected. That's easy to say unless it, until it happens to you. And then that answer doesn't suffice. Or at least as easy as it is to say it. And my, my challenge, I guess, tonight, guys, not to, to be incredibly depressing tonight, but my challenge is, is to maybe just share reality the way I read James chapter 4, and that is simply this. I think for some of us, we we think to ourselves, that's not me. I would never do that to a child. I would never do that to a, a colleague. I would never do that to a neighbor. I would never be in court for those things. And so that's not me. And you're right. I would say for the majority of us, that's not going to be you. But in thinking that, I think that we think because that's not me, that somehow God is okay with me. Because our justification seems to go like, uh, we almost pride ourselves in, in the, the inconsequential sins that you and I commit. We would never do this. And I'm not saying that these things aren't grave and, uh, and cause incredible amounts of remorse. Obviously they do. And I think that, uh, I think we mentioned last time we were here, um, I, I think sin is, is at, there's different, um, I don't believe there are different degrees of sin, but certainly different consequences to our sin. Some might even argue there are different gradations to our, the punishment of our sins based on maybe the knowledge going into the sin that you commit and the level of per, perversion of that sin that God would deal differently but eternally speaking, I think the Bible is clear, sin is sin. Romans describes it as uh, two different ways. One is that we've all sinned. And I, rem- I remember last time we were here, this is the way I define sin. So I don't want to get too far down this road without defining it. Uh, Millard Erickson, theologian, he said it the way I, I like it the best. He said, sin is any lack of conformity active or passive to the moral law of God. This may be a matter of act or thought or of inner disposition or state. Any lack of conformity, active or passive, to the moral law of God. And the reason I like that is because it it includes all of us then. Not just these people. But, But I think what we do is we deceive ourselves by saying, I'm not this person. And therefore, God's okay with me because of the petty sins that I commit, the inconsequential sins supposedly that I commit. 
we're not talking about my face being up there. And therefore, God is more focused on the large ticket items. He doesn't really care about the, the, the petty theft uh, sins that I commit. He doesn't care about the fact that, you, you know, and this is how, don't we do this actually? Um, you know, I lusted today, but, but I didn't lust that long. Um, I got angry at the person who cut me off in front of me in, in, on the freeway, but I didn't flip them off. We, 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 we pride ourselves in not going over the cliff. These people went over the cliff. Let's all admit it. Someone in that courtroom went over the cliff. And we take pride, I think, in saying, I didn't do that. So yeah, I sinned. But, it, but, it's, but it's, it's at this level. Theirs is at this level. And guys, I think part, the biggest deception going around in the church today is that you and I are actually okay with that. That you and I live our lives in such a way as if we expect to sin. We live our lives in such a way that we anticipate sinning today. And it's almost like we go before God and say, you know and I know I'm going to sin today. So let's just make a deal, God. And the deal is, I'll try to minimize it as best I can. And you be okay with that as best you can. With that as a backdrop, as colorful as that is, look at James chapter 4. And start in verse 4. I think that's where we left off. So let's start right in verse 4. James says in chapter 4, verse 4, you adulteresses, you spiritually unfaithful spouses, you two-timing, can't serve two masters, and so you're picking to be a friend of the world, disloyal spouse to God. And he's talking to believers. He's talking to you and to me. He's talking to the people in the church and he's calling us the petty sin thieves, adulteresses. I don't know if you've been around adultery. I don't know if you've experienced adultery. My heart breaks for you if you've been around it or have experienced it firsthand. It really does. I've uh, had several encounters with adultery in terms of colleagues and friends. And you know as well as I do, it is ugly and it is messy and it is, it's painful. And that's an, though all three of those are understatements, right? James comes to you and to me tonight and he says, you're an adulterer. You're a spiritual, unloyal, unfaithful spouse. And the imagery, obviously, is the imagery he's using with God and Israel um, because he's speaking to Jewish believers or, or believers that came out of a pretty heavy Jewish tradition. And so they would pick up on this right away from Hosea and Isaiah and other Old Testament passages that speak of us being the bride and the bride of God. And, and maybe the illusion even carries over to the bride of Christ in the New Testament. Either way, James is calling us out tonight. And I just don't want us to get too far down this path this week in particular 
when we have an opportunity on Friday to focus on the cross. We have an opportunity to acknowledge what James is saying. That before you get defensive tonight with God's word, just maybe just sit back and just kind of, just before you get defensive, just open yourself up a little bit to, is he right? So I'm not going to ask us to pass the mic around tonight and share our sins. But that would be colorful, wouldn't it? That would get us to a level maybe we've never been to before. So I'm not going to ask us to do that. I just want you, as we press on here, to maybe just dwell on this tonight. If James is right, God, what is my pet sin that I'm not going to talk about tonight? But what is the sin, God, that I could confidently admit that I've been in an adulterous relationship with you about? And as you think about that, I've got mine. I hope, guys, that if we can get to it tonight and talk about how do we deal with it, that whether we get to it tonight or not, that Friday would be a great time to really think about it. Um, We're doing chapel tomorrow in the high school and we're doing kind of an Easter service and we're giving each of the students a a spike uh, about this big, about seven, eight inches long, um, about that thick. Probably very unwise on our part to do that um, because we're going to give it to about 250 high school students and we're going to ask them to hold it in the dark, uh, darker area of the chapel um, for about 25 minutes. So pray for no lawsuits um, and no eyes to be poked out. But the point is, as we get on with the service, um, eventually what they're going to have an opportunity to do is to take their spike. I should have brought one. To take their spike, and we have a cross in the front of the chapel, is to walk up to that cross as one of our staff members is going to sing um, uh, a great hymn about, what, what is it? The old rugged Christ, is that the one he's going to sing? It's something like that, right? So you get the picture, okay? And so he's going to sing this song about, you know, um, about, uh, it's a great classic hymn. And, and they're going to have an opportunity to walk up to the cross. And I'm going to ask them tomorrow to take their spike. And I'm going to tell them the same thing which I just told you, which is that spike represents your pet sin. And, and what I mean by that, guys, is that Satan is a master at not not bombarding your life with a blanket of various sins he finds your weakness your achilles heel and he will spend your lifetime driving home that achilles heel to to get you to trip Um, you've never had a problem with smoking satan's not going to dump satan's not going to put you behind a semi full of marlboro semi and have it turn over you're just going to help the guy pick up the cigarettes and get on your way you, you know, if you've never drank a drop of alcohol in your life, he's not going to have, you know, the Budweiser truck fall over in front of you. Whatever your pet sin is, Satan is a master at hitting you at that pet sin over and over and over again. And that's why as believers, we wake up and say, how come I'm still struggling with this? I don't know if you've ever done this, but I've done this. I've asked Satan to leave me alone in that area. I've asked him to pick a new area. Because obviously, 
I can't win in that area. So help me out here. Give me a break today, Satan. And Satan takes great delight in saying, I will never give you a break. Until, I, until the day you die, I will keep at this one area or maybe two, whatever it is in your life, until you have complete victory or I break you. Unless you think he's compassionate or somehow merciful and he would even answer my call to leave me alone. He delights in the fact that I can't stand it anymore. Absolutely delights in it. That's what I mean by pet sin. So we're going to ask these students to take this spike that represents their pet sin and come to the cross while someone's singing something like the old rugged cross and to literally say out loud, Jesus, this sin put you on that cross and to drop it in a a bucket right by the cross. Because guys, I think we're going to get to Good Friday, my, my own opinion, and we're going to see a representative of the cross up here and we're going to say it's it's Jesus had to die for our sins. And Jesus had to die for the sins of the world. But lest you get too far away from that, I want you to acknowledge he died for your sins. If you were the only one that ever existed ever, Jesus would have had to come to earth and hang on a cross because of your sins. Not because of the sins of the world. Your sins put him on that cross 2,000 years ago. My sins put him on that cross. We do a fantastic job in the church today of deflecting or minimizing. And James is calling us out tonight by such language as you adulteresses. He goes on to say, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Uh, Some of your versions have the word uh, an enemy toward God. Therefore, he says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes him or herself an enemy of God. So I was thinking about that this week and I thought, you know, we looked at first John um, chapter two uh, last time we met. We looked at this idea of the lust of the flesh, the cravings of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, the pride in our possessions, the things that we do and have is what John describes as as what the world offers. James says it here as a friendship. You're, you're a friend of the world. If you are a friend of the world, you're an enemy to God. And again, if we're playing our cards right tonight, we will read that passage and say, well, I'm not a friend of the world. And therefore, I'm okay. And then we excuse ourselves basically from all of chapter four. So I thought we'd just do a quick survey tonight. What does it mean to be a friend of the world? I mean, really, what does that mean? Because if you can't admit tonight that you're a friend of the world, and let me just be clear, I'm not saying you are. I don't, you know you, I don't know you really. And so I'm not saying you are a friend of the world, but can, can I, I just want to show you a couple passages that describe what it means to be a friend of the world, because I want you to admit tonight, if you are being friendly with the world in a particular area of your life, it's time tonight to admit that. So turn, uh, turn to Ephesians chapter two with me. Go um, left in your Bible. Let's go to Ephesians chapter two and Let's look at a couple of passages here. Ephesians chapter 2, look at verse 3. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now listen to this. Among them too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, 
indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature of children and by nature children of wrath even as the rest okay so so paul describes friend being a friend of the world in language like indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind what does it mean to indulge in the desires of our flesh and of our mind is it subjective somewhat but again whatever your pet sin is does it fall into this category maybe maybe not okay um romans 13 travel with me back to romans matthew Mulcair, luke john acts romans go to your left again romans chapter 13 let's look at romans 13 let's look at uh starting in 12 paul says this in romans chapter 13 12 the night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So Paul gives us yet another description of what it means to be a friend of the world. And he even acknowledges some of these things. So ask yourself, is this, does, does my pet sin fall into these descriptions? Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, but it says that the one who is following his flesh, your eyes are never satisfied with your riches. You look at your riches, and this is accented all over scripture, but you look at your riches and it's never enough. Is that your pet sin? Honestly, tonight. I never, I never have enough. I need more. Is that what we're dealing with in your life? Um, you can write these down if you want, but John 15, chapter, eight, uh, chapter 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says that the world will hate you. And why? Because it hates me. And then Jesus says, if you were of the world, you'll know it by this indicator. The world loves its own. I love that. I love what Jesus says there. You'll know if you're of the world or you're a friend of the world. How? Because the world loves its own. In other words, if you are in with culture to the degree where culture loves you and you love it back. And again, very subjective, but you know if you're there, then Jesus says, the world will never hate you because you're you're one of the world. So ask yourself in terms of your pet sin, am I siding with the world in this particular sin area? Because the world's not going to hate you for it. It'll love you for it. It'll help you justify it. And then finally, let's just travel to Galatians chapter five. Um, Galatians chapter five kind of sums it all up. Galatians chapter 5 tells us in verses uh, 8, starting in 18. Galatians 5, uh, starting in 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. And now we have this list. Not an exhaustive list by any means, but nonetheless a list. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. All of those are sexual in nature. Idolatry, sorcery, enmities, 
strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, and that's a habitual practice of those such things, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Is your pet sin somewhere in that list? James is coming alongside of you and me tonight and he's saying, listen, uh, the jig is up, Christian. Life is brief. Time is short. God offers us today and not tomorrow. And why in the world are you spinning your wheels in remorse and guilt and shame and regret and having to, to cover lies and backtrack and get your story right and, well, it didn't really happen that way. Why are we in court today because someone's accusing me of something and on and on and on. And God says, your life is but a vapor. And one day I'm going to call you home. Is that how you want to spend your days? Constantly fighting with our spouses or our kids, constantly at, at odds with our coworkers or our employers or employees, constantly frustrated with the way the world is working and this, the system that we're under and we can't catch a break and so we're constantly uh, pointing the finger at someone else. People know us as an angry person, as a bitter person, as someone who has been wrong their whole life and so we just turn out to be, we wake up bitter basically. People know us to be prideful people, people that you can't get along with because I befriend you just so I ask, what can you do for me? And we all know it. People can't stand the fact that you are so unfaithful to your spouse or to your kids by either workaholism or actual physical lusting after someone and it's turned into an emotional affair, maybe even physical affair. And everyone knows it and you think you're fooling everyone, you're fooling no one. You are drowning in debt because you just can't see yourself not making the purchase. And so you can't get out from under the eight ball. And so you borrow upon borrow, you loan upon loan, and, and you just can't find a way out. And then you consider, I'll just pass this on. That's my kid's reward for me being their parent is they get to in inherit my debt when I'm gone. And God comes to you and to me this week, maybe, I don't know, and says, life is short. You don't have to live that way. Here's a, here's a novel idea for us in the room tonight. You don't have to sin. That temptation, that pet sin, you don't have to do it one more time. You don't. You might. But you don't. Why? Because of this weekend. Because there was a person that came and died for your sins and gave you, when he died for your sins, the power to conquer sin. Not when we're all said and done, dead and gone, and, but right now, right here. He gave you the power to do what he did in Matthew chapter 4. Satan had, from the time Adam and Eve were born, or created, um, how long did it take Satan to trip Adam and Eve up? Like five seconds? I mean, he goes to Eve, you know, and God tell you not to eat from the tree. From the tree? Yeah, I guess so. Well, he, you know why he did that? He didn't want you to be like him. Duh. Caught around the pride, the, the pride temptation. Come on, you want to be like God? So she eats, gives it to Adam, he eats, and the whole world goes to hell, basically, right? We know that story. 
So let's just say, I don't know what the timeline is, but let's just say roughly, give or take a thousand years, 5,000 years pass between Adam and Eve. I don't, I don't know where you're at in the whole creation thing, but let's just say for my sake, 5,000 years pass between Adam and Eve and Jesus. Or so, whatever. Satan has now, and so Satan comes up to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus goes 40 days without eating and drinking, right? Um, and so... So then he's out of the will, he's coming out of the wilderness and Satan's, you know, so this is Satan's shot. Satan has, you know, whatever, 3,500 to 5,000 years to trip up Jesus, to think about tripping up Jesus. That's a lot of time to think about how am I going to trip Jesus up? He's going up against a superstar and so he's got that much time to think about, listen, I've got this shot to trip Jesus up because Satan knows if I can trip him up, this whole thing goes away. This whole redeeming thing and perfect sacrifice, that goes away. So what does Satan hit Jesus with? Hits him with pride. Hits him with, I can give you everything. If you'll bow down to me, I'll make you whatever you want to be. Popularity, if you will. Uh, he hits him with, God's word really isn't true. Bread, live, live by bread alone. To, if, if that's, you know, turn the rocks into bread. Jesus, if you're hungry. And how does Jesus respond to Satan every time? Thus says the word of God. Thus says the Lord God. Be done with me. Uh, depart from me, Satan. I'm done with you. It's an interesting thought. I don't know if you, you know if you have time this week, maybe during your family devotions or something, ask your kids this or ask your parents this if you're here as a kid. Um, could Jesus have sinned? Um, did he did he have the ability to sin? Because he is God. And it's an interesting question only because I like to look at it as, what if, what if Jesus could have sinned? And every time he was tempted, every single time he was tempted, he chose not to. You're Satan, pretend. And you've got 33 years, basically, to get Jesus to sin once. One time. And based on our definition, we're talking about an act of disobedience, either in thought or action, against the moral law of God. One time I need to get Jesus to do that. And this whole thing goes away. I've got 33 years to try to get Jesus to sin if I'm Satan. And what if, in his humanity, every single time, he said no? How powerful does that make our Savior? How, how impressed are you with our Savior? Based on the fact that you know, you and I, we wouldn't do any better than Adam and Eve. We'd last like all four seconds before we'd sin. And you say, well, I wouldn't give into that whole pride thing. He'd hit you with your pet sin. <laughs> Whatever it is. Jesus spent 33 years on earth, roughly. Didn't sin once. Not once. Lustful thought. Uh, unrighteous anger, greed, pride, selfishness, not once. Uh, when I thought about that this past week, guys, I almost thought I would even give Jesus if he sinned just a little bit. Like I would, I would be impressed with that. But he couldn't. He, he, he just couldn't because you and I walked up to the bucket whenever you came to faith. Whenever that day was in your life, you walked to the bucket with your spike and you dropped it in the bucket and you said, Jesus, you're hanging on that cross for my sins. 
And Jesus said, yeah, I am. And, and, and I can because I'm the perfect sacrifice. And guys, out of a response, maybe for the rest of our lives, out of a response of thanksgiving to that, James tells us, you don't have to live in sin. And so he gives us um, a few ways on how not to do that. Okay, so, so, so look at this, and I want to answer a couple questions. Um, he says in verse 4, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. He says in verse 5, Or do you think that the Scripture speaks no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. It's a very confusing passage. Uh, this is an unclear verse. Uh, some options you have, and you can look these up on your own time, but you, some people think that that's our spirit uh, that he caused to live in us, the spirit in us. Numa uh, lives in us intensely. Uh, I'm sorry, envies or is jealous intensely. Another option is that God jealously longs for the human spirit that he made to live in us. And then the third option, which I like the best, is the Holy Spirit God caused to live in us uh, longs jealously for us to not sin. I like that one because it seems to fit in the context that God's Holy Spirit is jealous for us because he knows our potential. And it frustrates him, if you will, when we don't reach our potential. So he says, um, do you not think the scripture speaks no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made in you to dwell in us. But listen to this. And here's the first um, how to deal with our sin. And maybe we can write these down. The first way is he says in verse six, but he gives grace, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Um, Somebody give me a somebody give me a working definition of humility. What is humility? And please don't say the opposite of pride. Right. Too easy. What's humility? Just shout it out. What does it mean to have humility or to be humble? Do you think? Because, because I don't know much, but I know this. God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Okay, so what does it mean to be humble? Do you think? Okay, so these people couldn't hear you over here, so repeat everything you just said because it's great. Um, so... Uh, giving God credit where credit is due and not trying to uh, puff yourself up by saying that you're doing anything because everything you do is a gift from God, including, like, breathing. Excellent. Good. Over here. I just summed it up as dying to yourself. Dying to myself. I like that, too. That's good. Um, We're doing this series over at the high school um, in the chapels, and... We've titled it Jesus Rehab. Um, and I like that. Some of the students came up with it, actually. But I like it because what, what, what they're suggesting, they have a bunch of, like, sin issues. And the whole series is based on if you're dealing with any particular sin issue, um, that you can go to Jesus Rehab. And, um, and the idea is exactly what was mentioned here. Is basically, hu- humility is going before, well, let me, I'll hear one more and then. I'll give you my thoughts. Yeah. To serve and put others um, before yourself. To, to, I'm sorry, I didn't hear the to first To serve. Part. To serve others before myself. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, someone wrote this definition down. I thought it was, uh, it helped me. Um, they said, humility is key because it's seeking help from God rather than trying to do it on my own. 
Humility is admitting to God, I need help. Humility is going before God and saying, I, I need your help. And guys, everything we put on this list from here on out begins with that premise. Um, no, you know as well as I do, no rehab works unless the person admits that at the very beginning. I need help. So why do we act so arrogant and prideful, especially with that pet sin of ours, as if we say, I don't need help, God. And those of you who have struggled with a particular sin year after year after year, what is it going to take for you to finally bow down at the cross and admit you need help in this area? Is it going to be another 10,000 in debt? Is it going to be another affair? Is it going to be another three hours of porn? What's it going to be? Is it going to be another gossip session? Is it going to be another bout of jealousy that your neighbor has something you don't? Is it going to be another flipping someone off on the freeway all the while praying they didn't see the cornerstone sticker? What's it going to be before you and I come to the point of being humble enough to say, God, I need help. And I I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, God, honestly, between me and you, I'm okay in this area, you know, this area, this area, whatever it is, you know, I'm not a fiery up type kind of person. I'm, I'm okay with patience. I mean, it's documented. I'm a pretty patient person. I'm, I'm okay with finances. God, I I went to crown and financial freedom, a peace and I, I got it. But this area, that's, that's my area, God. What's it going to take for you and I to say, um, I need help. So God says uh, in verse 6, if you want help, here's how it is. Admit you need help. And when you do that, I will begin by giving you the grace you need. Now, answer me this, I guess. Um, what is grace? Give me a working definition of grace real quick. Okay, and so go ahead and say that out loud. Unmerited favor. Okay, so let's, favor. yeah, so that's the te- that's the theological. So break, can you break that down for us a little bit? Well, he's he's you don't deserve it, you know, but God's giving it to you anyhow because He loves you. Okay, and what would be what would be another word for favor? Because he's right. I mean, the word sherry in, in the Greek is unmerited favor, but but what does that mean to everyday people? Someone else can, you know, we can help each other out tonight. Someone said acceptance back here, love. Anything else? I want, I want it because because God's saying, if you're humble, guys, I, this is what I want to give you, and it's He calls it grace. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, God, I want to admit I need help in this area. I'm finally going to admit it tonight. I need help in this area, and God says, okay, now you have my grace in this area. What does that mean, though? Second chances, undeserved second chances. Okay, yeah, I like that. Yep, that's unmerited favor. And we used words like love and second chances. Whatever, I don't think any of us are wrong in here, but it's got to make sense to you by way of what you're getting out of this. And God is saying, listen, I need you this side of heaven to come clean in this area of your life. So when you do come clean, I need you to know, legally speaking, I am in your corner on this one. 
you, you're not, you're not disappointing me. You're not, um, you're making me so happy that you're, that you're acknowledging the fact that you're struggling in this area that I want to let you know, almost like this big sloppy hug that, that this bear hug that I'm here for you. And I'm not going to let you go through this alone. And I'm going to give you the tools you need to be victorious in this area. And it's going to begin with you acknowledging this unbelievably undeserving love that I want to give you. This, this, you wake up in the morning and God is there right in your bedroom, in your corner, you know, cheering you on. Get up out of bed. I'm here. Let's go attack the day. And we're going to have a great day today. And you're going to be tempted in that pet scenario. And I'm going to be right there with you. And we're going to defeat that today. Not tomorrow, not next week, but right today, I'm going to give you the tools you need to say no in this area. So let's go tackle this area together. I love you so much. You can't even believe how excited I am for you today. Maybe that's a little bit of what grace is. Because, as was mentioned, you don't deserve it. Those pictures I showed up here, guys, those videos I showed up here. Yeah, that's not me. But spiritually speaking, who isn't up there on a video? Who, who amongst us tonight would want our past 12 months put up our, on the screen every second of every day of the past 12 months? Any, any takers? Because we have the video. None of us do. And that's what grace is. God's saying, you don't deserve any of this. I want to give it to you this side of heaven. Don't wait till we're speaking well of you at a funeral. Let us speak well of you now. This side of heaven. Uh, There was a comment over here. I'm sorry. Yep. I was just going to say, because God is so personal and so individual and knows the desires of our hearts, that um, he can make whatever that undeserved thing is unique just to us. It's beautiful. Thank you very much. Yep. Um, I was going to say for grace, another word for that would be forgiveness. Absolutely. And here's the beauty of that, if I can just add on to that, is sometimes I think, you know, we do this pet sin enough where, I don't know, maybe you've never done this. I've done this, certainly. We do the pet sin enough where we're even tired of asking for forgiveness. You ever been there? You ever been in your sin, your, your pet sin so much where you do it, whatever it is, gossip, lying, pride, sex, sexual immorality, whatever it is, and you, you almost get done with whatever your sin is and you say to God, I'm, I'm, I don't even want to ask forgiveness, God, because I'm so disgusted with myself. I'm so mad at myself. I don't even know. It's almost like we're saying, I know I'm going to do it again, God, so why even ask forgiveness now, right? You have ever, ever been defeated that much in your pet sin? And, and grace is God saying, I'm going to do it anyway to you. I know you don't deserve it. You, you can't deserve it. But I'm going to give it to you anyway. Because that's how much I love it. That's how, much ex- that's how excited I am for you. Because I know your potential. I know this side of heaven, what you have the ability to, to accomplish in the next X amount of years I'm going to give you. Sin is going to drag you down to not accomplishing that stuff. And I want so badly for you to be all you can be this side of heaven. And so it begins with us crying out to God, I need help, God. I need help in this area. And God says, I'm going to give you an unbelievable head start by way of grace. 
Uh, let me write the second thing down and then maybe we'll call it night. We'll pick it up next week. The second thing is, um, he says in verse seven here, right? Is that right? It says, uh, verse seven, but he gives grace to the humble verse six. And then he says in verse seven, submit therefore to God. Now you tell me, um, what does it mean to submit to God? James says, submit therefore to God. Cry out to God, I need your help. And then what does it mean to submit to him? Someone said, listen over here. Good. Anything else? Dressed? Trust. I'm sorry. Listen to God. Trust in God. Uh, Keep going because I don't think we're there yet. Somebody said it, yeah. Uh, Fear the Lord. Uh, Wisdom starts with fear the Lord. Great. Great. And so I'm going to tie it to someone back here, which is fear of the Lord and surrender. And again, guys, check this out. How hard is it if you are prideful to surrender? In anything. Um, I take pride in the fact that my kids can't beat me in sports yet. 13, 9, and 7. And I won't let them. Which makes me a horrible dad. And it's a pride issue. I can't surrender to letting them win. And I, and I justify it by like, I'm teaching them about, you know, losing well and stuff. No, I'm just a prideful person. And that's not even my pet sin. I don't know what that is, but, but James is saying, submit yourself, Greg, to God means I've got to surrender myself to God. And if you don't think that's difficult, um, then you don't struggle in this area. But surrendering for a lot of us, that's difficult. And, and so let me put it in layman's terms. Surrendering, submitting to God simply means this. You're right, I'm not. If your word says that this is wrong, then it's wrong. I'm not going to debate it. I'm not going to question it. I'm not going to justify it. Well, everyone else, well, she, well, he, the world, my culture. If you say it's wrong, God, I don't care if you said it 2,000 years ago. I don't care if one of the prophets said it 4,500 years ago. It's wrong. That's what submitting means. Um, I just, we don't have time, but guys, we fight God tooth and nail, don't we sometimes? On what his word says and what we want it to say. And submitting to God simply means maybe just this week. I'm going to, if your word says it, God, I'm not even going to question it. God says, thank you. Thank you for acknowledging the fact that I'm right. That's the beginning. It's the, how do we deal with sin? We've got seven of these. I think we got through two tonight. How to deal with sin. First, be humble. And maybe this week is a great week for us to do that. When you go to the cross this Friday or remember what Jesus did, can you out of humility cry out to God and say, I need your help? And then secondly, uh, can I surrender to God this week? I think Pastor Lynn did a great, phenomenal job on Sunday acknowledging this fact about, um, you know, spending time in the word of God. And like a tree firmly planted by rivers of of water uh, is like the man or woman who spends time with the Lord. Um, he asked for 10 minutes a day. I don't know how you're doing on that. If you took him up on Sunday morning and now it's Tuesday and maybe you're, you're already struggling with that. I don't know. But as Pastor Lynn said on Sunday, guys, and I'll just close with this tonight, there is no magic to this. Uh, you're not going to die and get to heaven and God's going to say, um, you know, you missed the, the, the 
you miss the formula in terms of this big magic formula on how to live a successful life. I think Lynn hit it on the head when he said, um, basically, there are two types of lives. There's a blessed life and, and what I'm going to call tonight a burden life. The blessed life is those who very imperfectly start to apply this to their lives. And the burden life is the, is the, the one who uh, tries to justify their way through sin. And that's it. All, marriage, finances, relationships, work, everything that we do in life, I think, boils down to, I want those things to be blessed. And if you want them to be blessed, it's not a hard concept. It's hard to, to live out, but it's not a hard concept. Cry out to God where you're struggling and surrender to him. And God says, that's the beginning of a blessed life. You, you just can't even imagine what I'm going to do with you. A burden life says, I'm going to fight you tooth and nail in this area of my life, God. Because I will justify these seven areas are doing really well. This one area I am tanking in. But I'll take six out of seven. And God's saying, I can do amazing things with you. I want to do amazing things with you. Um, but you got to give me that seventh area. And for some of us, guys, this is the week. You got, we got to give him that seventh area. Let's pray. Father, thanks for tonight, and um, God, I'm sorry, I guess, on the front end or back end that it, it wasn't as jovial, um, maybe as some other times we've had in here, but um, I just didn't see James writing a very, uh, a very jovial message in, in chapter 4. And Father, I think next week might be a little more the same, which is um, maybe some of us tonight need to spend some time really dwelling on why is it that I refuse to give this area over to you? I haven't talked about it to family or friends or times that I've tried to do it on my own. God, I've struggled, I've failed. I love, I love the fact that we get your grace. I, I love the fact that, that you're in our corner. I love the fact that you're, our, you're championing um, our lives, Heavenly Father. But you also call us out into a better life. So maybe for some of us tonight, God, we can cry out to you on the way home in the quietness of our bedrooms and the quietness of our dens. I need help. And maybe for the very first time in my life, I'm crying out to you tonight, God, I need help. And Father, to those people, I am praying, my heart is praying tonight that you would do an amazing thing to them tonight and give them the grace they need to even get through the night and have a good night's sleep knowing they are on the road to victory. God, thank you that we can live a life of victory. We will forever praise you for that. Pray, pray, pray for Cornerstone this week, Father, that you would do an amazing thing on Friday service, on Sunday service, that thousands would come who need to know you so they could begin this journey of having victory in, in sin. And Father, may we be so bold, each one of us, to invite someone this Sunday and watch you transform a life. Uh, Father, for the care ministry, the car ministry this Saturday, do an amazing thing with them. Empower them to uh, minister to people who need your help. And we'll give you the praise, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next Tuesday. See you guys. Have a great, uh, have a great Easter.